Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, the Bible says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we rejoice this morning that death has died and love has won. We're so grateful for the hope of the gospel. That Jesus went to the mercy tree and died for our sins. And he defeated death itself when he rose from the grave. And we celebrate and we stand in awe of your greatness. And as we study your word today, we want to we draw close to you. We want to know you more. And know you in a deeper, more intimate way. And so, Father, as we draw near through study of your word, I pray you would draw near by your spirit. Open the eyes of our hearts that we would see the truths of scripture. And give us the wherewithal, the inclination to respond to what you show us. And we'll thank you, Lord, and praise you for that reality. We love you, and we offer you this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we've journeyed through the book of Joshua, we've seen how God parted the waters of the Jordan River to bring His people, the Hebrew people, from the east side of the Jordan into the promised land. And as they come into the promised land, they are faced with the mighty city of Jericho. They would have to deal with the city of Jericho if they were going to take possession of the land that God had given them. And Jericho was a fortress. It was a formidable city to to attack and advance against. And before that would happen, before Joshua led his troops against Jericho, there's one final encounter that he needed to have. And we read about that encounter at the end of Joshua chapter Five. Now it says in verse 13 that Joshua was by Jericho when he has this encounter. Probably Joshua uh, is on reconnaissance. He's being a good general. He's scouting the outskirts of Jericho, perhaps looking at the city from afar, trying to figure out his strategy, his plan to attack that great city. And as he is on reconnaissance, he has this encounter with a warrior with a drawn sword. And I want us to look in depth at that encounter. And the first question that I want us to answer about that encounter is an obvious question. Who is this warrior? Who is the one that Joshua encounters on the plains of Jericho? Well, basically, we have two options. The first option is, it is an angel in the sense of the created beings that God made to serve him, to worship him, and to carry out his bidding, including protecting his people. It could be an angel in the sense of the created angels that the Lord made. It calls, uh, uh, it says here he's a commander of the army of the Lord. So is this an angel that uh, God sent to give a message to 
Joshua. Or the second option is, this is a theophany. Now you might ask, what in the world is a theophany? Well, theophany is a theological term that simply means a manifestation of God that is tangible to the human senses. A manifestation of God that is tangible to the human senses. So is this warrior with the drawn sword a manifestation of God to Joshua? So those are two options. An angel or God himself. So who is this warrior? I believe this is a theophany. This is a manifestation of God. And there are some clues in the text to help us to come to that conclusion. For example, look what it says there in verse 14 as Joshua asks him, who are you for, us or our adversaries? This warrior says, no, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him. Now notice, when Joshua falls down to worship him, his worship is not refused. His worship is received. Now there's a passage over in Revelation, actually two passages, in Revelation chapter 19 verse 10 and Revelation 22, 8 and 9 where the Apostle John is given this great vision of heaven and the realities of the end times scenario. And when John sees an angel, the angel is so awe-inspiring and looks so incredible that John falls down to worship the angel, the created being of God. Immediately the angel says, Get up! I'm a servant like you are. I'm not worthy of worship. Jesus is worthy of worship. And so the angels in Revelation 19 and Revelation 22 did not receive worship. If this was an angel sent from God, he would not have received Joshua's worship. But see, his worship is received, not refused. A clue that this is God himself. There's another clue found in verse 15 when it says, The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This phrase, take off your sandals, you are on holy ground, signifies he was in the presence of deity. This phrase is used in other places in the Bible to communicate that someone is in the presence of God himself. So those clues help us to understand that this is a theophany, a manifestation of God to Joshua, but let me take it a step further. Not only is this a manifestation of God, this is a manifestation of the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. The warrior that Joshua sees with a drawn sword is the pre-incarnate Christ. They say, why would you believe that this manifestation of God, this theophany, is really a Christophany? Why would you believe that this is an appearance of the second person of the Godhead? Well, There's a distinction between the first person of the Godhead and the second person that he sends to do his bidding with his people. So keep that in mind. Look with me over in Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23. We see this clearly. Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. The Lord is speaking to his people as he has led them out of Egypt. He says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I've prepared. So that's just a created angel, one that God made to serve him and to worship him and to do his bidding. Is this a created angel that he's talking about? No. Look what it says next. Pay careful attention to him, 
and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. Now listen, the only one that has the prerogative to forgive sins is God. So by him saying, if you rebel, he will withhold his forgiveness. He's speaking of deity. And then look what he says to make it even clearer. For my name, the divine name of God is in him. This angel I'm sending is the second person of the Godhead. God himself. We call him Jesus Christ. And I believe that's the one that appears to Joshua at the end of Joshua chapter 5. So when you see this phrase, the angel of the Lord, most of the time in the Old Testament, it's referring to a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Now, that has major implications for how we read and understand the Old Testament. For example, in Genesis 22, verses 11 through 18, it was Jesus who stayed the hand of Abraham from sacrificing Isaac and then provided a ram caught in a thicket to sacrifice. This was a beautiful picture of the substitution of Christ for those who are under the curse of death. The angel of the Lord there in chapter 22 is Jesus at work. It was Jesus who wrestled with the trickster Jacob in Genesis 32, 22-32, bringing him into submission and giving him a new name, Israel. This new name signified Jacob's changed life after he submitted to the Lord. It was Jesus who appeared to Moses when it says in Exodus 3, verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. Just like in our passage in Joshua, Moses was commanded to take off his sandals as he stood on holy ground. It was Jesus, again with a drawn sword, that caused Balaam's donkey to speak and then warned Balaam not to curse Israel in Numbers 22, 22 through 35. It was Jesus who appeared to a man and his wife who were unable to bear children. He told them he would give them a son who they were to set apart to the Lord. He would raise up this child named Samson to deliver Israel from Philistine rule and oppression. After their encounter with the angel of the Lord, Samson's father Manoah said to his wife in Judges 13, 22, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. It was Jesus who walked in the fiery furnace with the faithful Hebrew boys in Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar said in Daniel 3, verse 25, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. He goes on to say in verse 28, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants. It was Jesus in the fiery furnace with those boys. It was Jesus who saved Daniel's life in the lion's den. In Daniel 6.22, Daniel said, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth and they have not harmed me. And so all throughout the Old Testament, we see these Christophanies, these appearances of Jesus Christ before his incarnation, which reminds us of a very important biblical truth. When Jesus was born to Mary 2,000 years ago, that was not his beginning. Jesus Christ existed before his incarnation. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ 
has always existed. From eternity past, he's always been around. And he's been active in human history, working to bring about his plan and his purposes. We see him in the Old Testament as a warrior with a drawn sword, a protector, a provider, a guide, and as a present help for his people as we see the plan of redemption unfold. Jesus was at work as God formed a people. Jesus was at work as God gave his people a promised land. Jesus was at work to preserve his people from enemies. And then one day in the fullness of time, Jesus took on human flesh, sent by God through the Jewish nation to die for sinners and defeat death by rising from the dead. And one day, Jesus Christ will return again as a warrior to put down rebellion, to set everything right, to bring his people home to heaven and to make all things new. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And so this encounter that Joshua has on the outskirts of Jericho is an encounter with the second person of the Godhead, an encounter with Jesus Christ. And we see in this encounter, this pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, that Jesus demands some things from Joshua. And by way of application, we're going to learn and be reminded of the reality that Jesus demands some things from us. So we look back in Joshua chapter 5. What did Jesus demand from Joshua, the general of the Hebrew army. First of all, as we think about Joshua and think about our own lives, we learn that Jesus demands our allegiance. Jesus demands our allegiance. Look what it says in verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? I love that question. You know, Joshua was a, a military man. He's a fighting man. He sees a warrior with a sword drawn. He says, hey, whose side are you on? And isn't it interesting how the warrior responds? He said, no. In other words, I, I'm not on your side. I'm not on Jericho's side. I have my own agenda. Look what he says. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. One preacher said it like this. The warrior did not come to take sides. He came to take over. And he wanted Joshua to understand, listen, I didn't come to take your side. It's important that you take my side. That's what's happening here. He's calling for Joshua's ultimate allegiance. Jesus makes it clear in this passage that he is the ultimate authority. And look at the, the authority of Christ in, in this passage with the phrases that are used. He says there in verse 14, I'm a commander of the army of the Lord. That's a pretty cool thought. And then again in verse 15, the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua. What does it mean that this warrior was the commander and is the commander of the army of the Lord? What is the army of the Lord? Well, we get some insight into that. When we look at some other passages. For example, in 2 Kings chapter 6, the king of Syria is perplexed. He keeps mobilizing his troops to attack Israel, and it seems like the Israelites know his every move. 
So the king says, there's a mole. Someone's telling him, there's a spy. Someone's telling him what we're going to do. What's the problem? And his advisors say, oh king, it's not a mole, it's not a spy. You see, Israel has this man of God named Elisha. And God tells him what you're going to do, and then he tells the king, and they're ready for you. And so the king of Syria says, well, we got to go get Elisha. And he raises his army up. And the entire army marches to go get one preacher. I love this story. And and they come into the valley where Joshua was with his servant. And his servant looks at at, at Elisha and says, Elisha, this is bad. There's an entire army and us. And Elisha says... Lord, would you open the eyes of my servant that he might see spiritual reality. And at that moment, God opens his eyes and all around the hills, he sees warriors and chariots of fire, an angelic army. And the servant says, I got it now. And God blinds the Syrians and and, and protects Elisha and his servant from their attack. It's an amazing story. But we get a feel for what it means when Jesus says, I'm a commander of the Lord's army. I am in charge of that fiery, angelic host. I call the shots. There's another interesting verse over in Matthew when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's betrayed by the kiss of a friend. He's arrested and immediately Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. Jesus immediately heals the man's ear and he says, Peter, put away your sword. Don't you understand that I could call 12 legions of angels, that's 72,000, to come and rescue me from this garden. I'm not going to the cross because I have to. I'm going to the cross because I want to. Put away your sword, Peter. But in that verse we see his authority over angelic armies. I could call 12 legions of angels to rescue me from man's plots and devices. And Back in Joshua 5, he's saying, listen, here's my authority. I'm a commander of... Of the army of the Lord. And because he's the commander of the heavenly army, he has the right to command the Hebrew army. That's the point he's making. Hey, because I lead the heavenly host, I can lead your army too, Joshua. And because he has the right to command the Hebrew army and command every army, he has the right to command you and me. He's the authority, he's the king, he's the Lord, he calls the shots. And if we truly want to follow Jesus, he calls for our allegiance. You see, Joshua was the general, but he was the second in command. And he needed to understand, before I lead my troops into the promised land, I am not ultimate. I am second in command. And here's what you you and I need to understand. No matter what position or prominence we attain in this life, We are always second in command. Always. He is the king. He calls the shots. You know, we learn from an early age to say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. And that's a way for us to communicate that we are 
are citizens of this country and, and, and we want to be good citizens of this nation, one nation under God. That's a good thing to, to pledge allegiance. And before Joshua could be the general that God wanted him to be, he had to make sure that his allegiance was with the Lord. That his allegiance was with the king of kings. Joshua needed to know for sure that he was second in command. And so Jesus demands our allegiance. He is the ultimate authority. And listen to me. If Jesus does not have your allegiance, I question if Jesus has your life. Can you call yourself a follower of Christ? If you are shirking his lordship. Is there a biblical category for that? The answer is no. You can't call Jesus Lord and then ignore him. It doesn't work that way. Jesus demands our allegiance. Secondly, Jesus demands our reverence. Back in Joshua chapter 5. As Joshua was trying to identify who this warrior is, he said, I'm, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him. As Joshua comes to understand the identity of this warrior, he is overcome, he is overwhelmed, and he falls on his face in worship and homage to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I've got a question for you this morning. It's a tough question. It's a penetrating question. When was the last time you were on your face before Jesus? So amazed by His majesty and His power and His authority and His grace, that you are overwhelmed and you have no other option but to be on your face before the Lord. When was the last time you found yourself worshiping like that? Does Jesus have your reverence? Are you in awe of Him? Does does He still astound you? Does he still amaze you? Are are you still overcome in his presence? Or has walking with Jesus, living for Jesus become just another thing that you do? Jesus demands our reverence. There's a song that we sing and there's a line in that song. And every time I sing it, I... I think, boy, I want to be there. I'm not sure that I'm there, but I want to be there. The line says, Filled with wonder, awe-struck wonder, at the very mention of your name. Are you there? I don't know that I'm there. I want to be there. Filled with wonder, awestruck wonder at the very mention of the name of Jesus. That's what's happening with Joshua. He he comes to understand, I am in the presence of God, the mighty warrior, the captain of the Lord's army. 
He falls down on his face and worships. In Westminster Abbey in London, England, there are many tombs placed under that structure. And people, by virtue of walking throughout Westminster Abbey, walk over those tombs. Many famous people are buried beneath Westminster Abbey. But there's one tomb that no one is permitted to walk over. It is the tomb of the unknown soldier. And that unknown soldier represents the heroism and courage and nobility of of the British fighting forces throughout the years. And so no one is able to walk over the tomb of the unknown soldier. Even the Queen of England, when she was uh, in her coronation service, she didn't walk over the tomb of the unknown soldier. No one does that. Now if there's that kind of reverence for the unknown soldier... How much more should we reverence the one who we know as King of kings and Lord of lords? When Joshua shows up, the soldier is unknown, but he comes to know who he truly is, and his response is awe-inspired reverence. Where has reverence gone in the church today? Sometimes our... Our faith is so light and trivial and it doesn't speak of reverence. I heard a preacher on TV one day and he was talking about praying and praying in faith and God will give you what you want. And he, he used as an example, one day he was praying at the mall and God gave him a space, two, two spaces from the front door. And praise the Lord for the, the closer space at the mall. What? We've reduced Jesus to a parking attendant? Do you see a problem with that? We've lost our reverence and forgotten that He is King and He is Lord. And He demands not part of us, He demands all of us. When was the last time you were on your face before the Lord? Number three, Jesus demands our allegiance and Jesus demands our reverence. But third, Jesus demands our obedience. Verse 14, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? So it's while he's on his face worshipping that he asks this question. You're the king. You're the general. You're the commander. I'm recognizing who you are. I'm in awe of who you are. Now would you show me what you want me to do? Give me my marching orders. Joshua here shows us what obedience looks like. And Joshua exemplifies three aspects of obedience. First of all, Joshua exemplifies eager obedience. Notice that the question is preemptive. Jesus doesn't have to say, now that I've got your attention, Joshua, I'm going to give you some instructions. No. Joshua preempts by asking him what he wants him to do. He's on his face worshiping. Lord, what do you want me to do? Wouldn't you love it, parents? At the beginning of every day, your kids came walking in the room and said, Mom, Dad, what do you want me to do? Point the way, 
Show me and, and we'll get right to it. Wouldn't you love that? That's what Joshua's doing here. Lord, what do you want me to do? It's eager obedience. He was eager to obey. Sometimes our obedience can, can be from a sense of, 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 um, of, of joylessness. It's kind of a begrudging obedience. Yes, Lord, I know I need to do this and I'll do it. But Joshua here exemplifies eager obedience. Secondly, he exemplifies immediate obedience. Look in verse 15. The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Look at the next verse, or next phrase. And Joshua did so. It doesn't say, Joshua, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And Joshua said, not right now, Lord, I'm really busy, but when things settle down, then I'll, I'll take off my shoes. He doesn't say, hey, I'm going through a crisis right now. When the crisis passes, then I'll obey you and take off my sandals. He doesn't say, you know, Lord, I have a lot on me. I'm a general of an army. We've got to attack Jericho. That's a big deal. So let me get past that. And after I get past that, then I'll take off my shoes. No. His obedience is immediate. Hey, here's your first instruction. Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And Joshua did so, period. And that's what Jesus wants from all of our lives. When we understand what he expects from us, when we understand his commands, he wants us to obey immediately. Because delayed obedience is disobedience. There's a third aspect of obedience that Joshua exemplifies. Eager obedience, yes. Immediate obedience, yes. But third, obedience when it doesn't make sense. Obedience when it doesn't make sense. Now, after verse 15, we see the end of the chapter and the beginning of a new chapter. But you understand that when the Bible was first written, there weren't chapter divisions and verse references. I'm I'm grateful for those. They help us to find places in Scripture and memorize places in Scripture. But they weren't there in the original writing. So there wasn't an end of a chapter at the end of chapter 5 and then the beginning of a chapter in chapter 6. It was just one continuous narrative. And I believe that the instructions that Jesus gives Joshua as to how they are to go against Jericho come in this encounter at the end of chapter 5, when he's on his face in obedience. And look at the instructions that Jesus gives in chapter 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand, With its king and mighty men of valor, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. The priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Now, from a military perspective, those are weird orders. I mean, Joshua was probably ready to hear him say something like this. Hey, get your siege ramps ready, and and get your weapons and your armament, and prepare to, to close in the city, and... Lay siege to that city so they can't get the supplies they need, and eventually they will surrender 
That's what you need to do. But no orders like that. Get the ark. Get the priests. Get some trumpets. Get the fighting men. Attack? No. March around it. Once a day for six days. On the seventh day, if you march around it, blow the trumpet, shout with a great shout, God will take care of the rest. That's a little perplexing, isn't it? And can you imagine Joshua going back to his other officers and giving them these instructions? Hey guys, here's what we're going to do. Grab your trumpets and let's go. These orders from a human, worldly perspective don't make sense. And obedience often doesn't make sense. But the Lord wants us to obey even when it doesn't make sense. Sometimes obedience doesn't make sense to us. I mean, just read the Sermon on the Mount. If you have an enemy, pray for him. And love him too. What? That doesn't make sense. Love your enemies? That's what Jesus calls us to do, right? I was reading this past week in my quiet time in 2 Corinthians. and I was reading about... Uh, men in the church that had a disagreement. And the Lord says through Paul's writing, listen, don't, don't sue one another. Let some men in the church, some leaders in the church, let them help you with their wisdom and bring their wisdom to bear on the situation and settle it, solve it, so that you don't make a, a bad name in the community by suing each other as brothers in Christ. And it even says this in 2 Corinthians 6. It says, you should be willing, listen, you should be willing to be defrauded. What? Willing to be defrauded? I have my rights! Doesn't make sense to let someone take advantage of me, does it? That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 6. It's a head-scratcher. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't make sense from a logical, worldly perspective. But Jesus calls us to obey anyway, right? We're to obey when it doesn't make sense. Sometimes what Jesus calls us to do is not going to make sense to us. Sometimes when we obey Jesus, it's not going to make sense to others. People in your family might, might find you strange. People in your workplace may think you're weird. People at your school may stop hanging around you because your obedience is so countercultural, people don't know how to handle it. And it makes them uncomfortable. And, and they don't understand what you're all about. I mean, again, when Joshua went back and gave these orders, I'm sure some of the, the seasoned veterans said, Joshua has lost his mind. He thinks we're going to capture Jericho with trumpets and the ark and just marching and shouting? Sometimes obedience to Jesus doesn't make sense from our perspective. And sometimes our obedience to Jesus doesn't make sense to others. I was amazed this past week, I don't know if you saw it, but um, the Vice President of the United States uh, referenced the fact that he keeps the Billy Graham rule. You know the Billy Graham rule is? The Billy Graham rule is that a man doesn't get alone with a woman who's not his wife. And he has precautions and, and boundaries in place just to protect his integrity, to avoid even the appearance of evil. And, and you should have seen, or perhaps you did see, the vitriol and the 
the sneering at him for making that decision in his life. They, they, they made fun of the vice president for putting boundaries in his life to protect his integrity and stay faithful to his wife. And they, they looked and said, that's so arcane. That, that's so outdated. Can I tell you this? The Billy Graham rule worked pretty good for Billy Graham. Amen? And uh, as the vice president seeks to be faithful to his wife, he's keeping that rule too. That's how he's obeying Jesus. Doesn't make sense to everybody else. But it's what he's doing. And sometimes when you and I take steps to obey, to follow Christ, to live for his glory, it's going to look countercultural. It's not going to make sense. We should follow Jesus anyway. Amen? And so, Jesus demands our allegiance, and he demands our reverence, and he demands our obedience. I love this quote from David Jackman. He writes, The essential preparation for the fall of Jericho is that the earthly leader falls flat on his face before God. I love that. That is the prerequisite for God's plans to be unveiled and God's purpose to be activated. And listen, the same is true for the church of God today and for its individual members. It is when we live in glad submission to God's will revealed in his word that he can lift us up and lead us on. What was the prerequisite for Joshua to be a mighty general? He had to fall flat on his face and obey. What's the prerequisite for you and I? To be used by God. I would submit that Jesus demands the same things from us he demanded from Joshua. We need to fall on our face before him as our King and Lord and live lives of radical, head-scratching obedience. Here's what I want you to walk away with. The majesty and authority of our Savior and Lord calls for awe-inspired obedience. The majesty and authority of our Savior and Lord calls for, demands, awe-inspired obedience. So listen, would you call your Christian life awe-inspired obedience?